0: You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everyone. Good morning. Good evening. Good afternoon, wherever you are in the world uh, today, I am speaking with Brendan Newton, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We are going to discuss an organization based in Australia that's called AIM. And this is an organization that was founded in 2004. Uh, By now, which is 2021, uh, they're in 52 different countries doing some incredible work. There's been Harvard Business School case studies written on the organization. Uh, They are working to make a difference in the world. I love some of the verbiage that they use and how they speak about their work. Unlikely connections and uh, building bridges. I think it's really, really... Uh, noble work that that the organization is doing. And Brendan, maybe tell listeners a little bit about you first. Thank you for being with me, sir. So it's good to see you. Yeah, maybe tell people a little bit about the organization and then let's hear a little bit about you. I'd love to
1: hear your story as well. No worries, Scott. It's great to be here. Great to be talking to all of the potential listeners out there. And I'm excited to connect on the other side of the world. The organisation we've been going hard with for a lot of years now, 17 years, is AIM. You know, AIM originally was coined by its founder when he was a 17-year-old youngster at Sydney University. it's an Aboriginal Australian native and a real personality. You know, I'm talking like Steve Jobs, kind of Richard Branson, kind of Nelson Mandela, kind of, you know, those kind of vibrant, Absolute stardust creatures that are dreaming of a new world and a fairer world from the age of 10 years old. So he started it and he called it Australian Indigenous Mentoring Experience. Uh, a couple of years later, he threw that name in the bin and just called it AIM because he realized his aspirations were to change the world, not just Australia. Yeah. So he started out with 20, 20 kids down at the local high Indigenous population high school. And he went into that high school with 20 of his university friends. And he literally walked in with this fascinating, brand new, energetic pedagogy. And he said, You guys have everything within you that you'll ever need to be number one, proud of your culture and your background. Number two, to kick ass at school and play that game too. And then number three, dream of your own dreams and go and achieve them like no one else has done before. So it was a really different approach and he broke through a lot of, he cut through a lot of noise for, for a lot of kids and that mentoring, that engagement between your tertiary, relatively privileged tertiary students from Sydney University, one of the most prestigious, oldest money in Australia, they're walking down the road to work with Aboriginal kids and that that bridge that started to get built was I think the foundation of the DNA of AIM that exists you know, meeting different people and actually having real connections with people you wouldn't otherwise have. So
0: I love the, you had sent me a video and I'll put a link to this video in the show notes for listeners. But at the end of this video, there's a phrase and it says, if we want to change the world, uh, we need to change the way it works. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful video that nicely kind of captures in a visual form exactly what it is the organization's trying to do. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's cool. I mean, it, it is, it is good to have good collateral and good, good themes, good principles, stuff like that. But, you know, deeper than that, we all as humans, I think it's important to recognize we're both good and bad. We've got, you know, we've got white and black. We've got, you know, we've got a mixture of traits. And as we go into the world, it, this is so important that we we're not too noble about how we how we do it we go in and we, we acknowledge the good and bad in, in each other too but actually making connections with people we wouldn't otherwise connect with is i think foundationally what our future is about as a as a uh, as a race
0: i've been having some really fun conversations with a mentor of mine and this podcast released a few weeks back but it's a gentleman named john Worgan, and and essentially he's come up with what he calls a deep learning mindset. One of the fundamental tenets, according to the research, that is if you if you want people to develop and grow and evolve, you have to be engaged in conversations with people who have other lived experiences. You can't uh, just sit in your own silo and uh, assume that uh, you're going to have a wide perspective on the world. So that statement just wholly resonates with me. Uh, are you building relationships and connections? And I think if that that was a focus of... Of our globe, which it sounds like it's a focus of aim, building relationships, it's absolutely critical.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's super important for us over the next decade to see how we can really play out quite an arrogant statement, which is, you know, can we change these current kind of tunneled versions of systems which perpetuate disadvantage? And I think critical to that is is really going the other way to some of the social media algorithmic stuff where you you're introduced to people that you know or things that you know already but rather than that we're trying to build unlikely connections based on people we don't know or things we don't know that's i that I think that's the key if we're going to find solutions for all these kind of quagmire of environmental and societal issues talk about your path to
0: to aim and talk about your role and and how you were connected with the organization because you have a you have a background that for some might feel like a very different background than maybe what you're doing right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't know, mate. Like I suppose it's hard to tell my story without acknowledging like the, the origin. I, I used to get taken to football games. Uh, It's not um, NFL back here. It's, you know, rugby league, but very similar vibe. And I'd stand up behind my grandpa as a 10 year old and he'd intentionally pick fights with the, uh, with the other members of the crowd. And And that was, you know, he he was like a really principled kind of man, like lovely guy, good family man, stuff like that. But he had this rebellious streak where he just—it's almost like he just wanted to like pick fights, you know. Like, and for (laughs) me, that that was really interesting. And I think it's kind of formulated how I approach the world. I've always looked for ways to break the system and. I don't think it's something I'm projecting out of my own insecurity. It's more it's like a a trait that I I value. Yeah, my personal journey was that I grew up, I suppose, in a schoolyard. Some of my first memories were going to every group at every table and spending time with them, and I, I really... I couldn't swallow this concept of there being like this cool group and then there's this nerdy group and then there's this other group. I I just I felt angry and upset at that idea and would constantly do loops around the the yard to make sure I was connecting with everyone, which was I think quite countercultural and something I'm really proud of, but was, you know, just something quite innocent at the time. And as I grew up, I spent a lot of time chasing big waves I'm, I'm, a, I'm a risk taker by nature I not in the I don't think in the sense where hey I'm just going to go and explode myself because I'm internally exploding um it's more it's just part of my DNA so I'd catch lots of big waves and we we did lots of documentaries over a decade riding my boogie board down waves in Canary Islands and New Zealand and Tahiti and all sorts of places and made about three videos that was mm. Really special to cut my teeth on a global scene in a particular sport and subculture. I learned a few things there. However, I think the clincher of my personal experience to develop me, who I really are, I really am, is the struggle I had, particularly with obsessive compulsive disorder. That became a really dominant feature of my daily life at the age of 18, 19. It always had traits towards anxiety and obsessive thinking, which to many people's perspective, you know, that's helpful in some cases, but I think where it's diagnosable and actually creates significant disturbance is when you're debilitated on a daily basis. And it really ruined my life for a number of years. And it's something I still grapple with on a daily basis. Mm. Uh, However, it's been the most wonderful teacher in it's invited me to get to know who I am within myself uh, and within my mind and manage that and develop techniques of meditation to curb that into a a positive frame and then after that it's it's then developed this this real softness towards people and people on the margins that experience maybe life slightly more difficult uh with more difficulty and that for me has really informed my work with aboriginal people in australia and over the last um, particularly over the last so the 10 years globally as we work as a, a global mentoring program for minority populations. So that's some of my story. I'm here on the east coast of Australia with my wife and two kids and you know, living life and
0: Brendan. Talk about talk about some observations you've had in, in your time working with AIM. How have your perspectives shifted in
1: those years? What what are some themes that come to mind for you? Mostly. Our current systems value um, capacity to meet results immediately, and that's that's a really difficult thing for someone who has been put on the margins, for example, for the first 10 years of their life through no fault of their own. Yeah. And we've got colonisation stories all over the planet where, unfortunately, there's big educational attainment rate gaps, and even that education system is... Is framed up in a certain way and, and that sucks because what we're doing is we're in the first hour for example of interaction with a young person or with anyone we're judging where they fit on a social scale and pigeonholing them according to that I think that's the m- main thing I've learned and seen and I, I think we need to design systems as a, as a globe as nations that acknowledge the nuance of intelligence and the diversity of intelligence That's something I'm really passionate about. You know, one of my favourite things is to walk into a room of Aboriginal kids and just see the intelligence alive in their interactions. Yeah. There's this like, there's this just, there's a palpable spirit that you can kind of walk and touch and see and and it's just alive, like completely. I used to go sit in the Aboriginal community on the south coast of New South Wales when I was particularly mentally ill and I'd sit and roll a a ball across the grass with a bunch of 13-year-olds, and I'll get goosebumps even talking about it. It just, there's something there that you just don't get anywhere else. Why is life so difficult for some of these kids? Well, maybe because the first time they went to school, within the first hour, they'd get put in a certain class and a certain group, and and off they go on that trajectory based on reasonably arbitrary criteria. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and 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 I know that the Australian Aboriginal story is no different from the Indian American story. Is no different from the, you know, the the slums in Rio de Janeiro. It's, you know, it's just it's nonsense. We need to develop a, a, like I think you're saying a deeper learning that your buddy was talking about.
0: What is in your opinion, based on the work that you're doing? Because obviously, AIM is running a ton of different experiments, trying to figure out how we shift and move the needle, not only on the individual level, but then also, like you said, in the system level. But what are some things that have been working that have caught your attention or that you're particularly proud of? Or what would you say are some elements in the secret
1: sauce? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, good, good call. So I think number one, it's good to identify all these nuanced conversations and and dive in and be open. Um, Number two, it's good to actually jump in and, and make impact now because there's kids getting, you know, their lights switched off, there's there's pain, there's suffering, there's health issues. Yeah. So getting active and doing something now, I think is really important. What we've been able to do with AIM is establish a repeatable scalable model between a group of those who come from a basically a privileged background, university students. And we've been able to mobilize them, train them and set them free into a weekly engagement with minority school students in the periphery of their university. And we've not only done that on a couple of universities, we've done that across 350 schools, 40 universities, 25,000 minority young people have gone through school based on our mentoring curriculum at the same rate as their non-marginalized peers, which is closing this crazy kind of supposedly impenetrable gap of educational equity and i think the secret sauce there is actually putting people who are different the university students that may not have these connections with these minority demographics and sitting them down having a two-way interaction where most of the time the mentor actually the mentor actually gets more out of it yeah and there's this kind of there's this connection that is just it doesn't happen peer to peer doesn't happen teacher to student doesn't happen Mum, mom to to son. So yeah, having that repeatable, scalable model has allowed us to work with twenty five thousand students and looking to go one hundred thousand students by twenty twenty five globally, and that's our aspiration. I think that repeatable model with your two big levers in the world, which are universities and schools, putting them together with a repeatable system of of engagement.
0: How how does that? Uh, so you'd mentioned Rio de Janeiro or a community in the United States with with Native Americans. How does does it work? Does this repeatable scalable system work regardless of those different contexts? What's your experience been?
1: Knowing that it's freedom within a framework. Yeah. So we provide, a, I suppose, a a template. Salesforce has worked with us to develop trails through their trailhead program, yeah. which initiates a leader who has been recruited by us. Um, and recommended locally as a representative of that minority community who has the capacity to lead from a university level. So we identify a leader, we call them a president of imagination, and we walk them through these online tools. And then from there, they go, okay, here's my tools, here's my frames, but now here's my local context. Here's what makes schools and university students move in my local context. And they fit frame around that context and there's that adapt- you know adaptability along the way. There's a local staff member, actual paid staff member on every country. There's that kind of degree of back and forthing and coaching.
0: You're you're running experiments, and you are you are working to figure out what works in this context, and so that kind of failing fast and and experimenting and seeing what works in this context, I think it's critical, right? Because you could call it an ill-defined problem, an ill-structured problem. You could call it a wicked problem. You could call it an adaptive challenge. Regardless of what you call it, I don't know that any one person has the answer. So Mm -hmm. we're experimenting and we're trying to move the needle, right?
1: 100%. And I think we fall into a a dangerous space, particularly if we're aspiring towards social change. If we pretend we've got a model that'll fit and stay for a decade and that will, you know, that won't change and adapt and won't fail, we're so hell bent on risk mitigation sometimes in our in our structures because you're kind of not adapting and you're not and you're not flexible enough and you're not willing to to lose.
0: When you think about what needs to happen to achieve, because you said was it a hundred thousand by was it twenty twenty four or twenty twenty five?
1: Yeah, 2025, we've set a goal for 100,000 school students transitioning through school at the same rate as their non-minority peers using the AIM mentoring structure.
0: How can listeners uh, engage, learn more? I'm going to ask you that question, but I also just, I, I imagine that's just mobilizing thousands of people around the world to become engaged to then go do the work, right? And AIM is kind of that catalyst, that platform at least I have it in my mind, it's kind of that platform by which then to mobilize that army of people,
1: right? Absolutely. And we know all people, most people actually want to make change, but yeah, it's just a a platform to make change with in in a trustworthy sense that's proven. How can people activate that in their local area with their local institution? Well, it would be identifying leaders that have the capacity, for example, to become imagination presidents. And then sending them to the website at aimmentoring.com and saying, hey, here's an opportunity for you to, it's a learning and development opportunity of a lifetime where you get to mobilize a bunch of your friends as mentors, train them with structure and work with a hundred minority young people and have that impact over a 10 month period throughout your tertiary education. If I'm an imagination president, what does that look like on the local level? How does that work? Yeah, so if you're an imagination president on a local level, It means that you have put your hand up to become essentially a leader of a mentoring chapter in your local region. You've uh, registered an AIM society at your institution. You've taken the tools off the shelf from AIM to recruit and train mentors from that institution, your peers, and then you've got a school agreement with a local school or a couple local schools that have within them the local demographic that you're wanting to work with it might be uh, african-american it might be uh, lgbtqi whatever demographic you've decided that you want to work with and once that school agreement or yeah MOU has is crossed off you get permission notes distributed to the students that want to be involved and it's a voluntary involvement and then the kind of goal is that you run a weekly mentoring session where we've got some frame around that and some pedagogy and some activities that we offer the imagination president as they go out with their mentors to that school once a week. And there's a period of time where we start and finish that. And the important aspect is that that mentor doesn't feel like, that leader doesn't feel like they've got this ongoing role to coach kids through life. It's a, it's a It's got a clear start and a clear finish, the idea that the, the kids become stronger yeah. after their interaction with us rather than being, becoming dependent. And And talk
0: a little bit about, let's say, one kind of piece of the curriculum. I'm going to drill down a little further. What might a week or a month's worth of curriculum look like? Are you talking about leadership? Are you talking about values? What's the Because the, I, I read on the website the values of the organization and they're incredible. Uh, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes so that people can see what it is that you stand for. It's very noble aims. Are those values then part of the curriculum or how does that work?
1: Yeah, really good question. Sorry, I'm I'm getting struck on the on the framing of the you're looking you're looking for the actual activities. There's two modes for mentoring that yep. we we give to the imagination president, their interns and their mentors. And number one, it's in school tutor squads, usually one hour blocks on a weekly basis where the kids sit in a room with the mentors and they go through 15 minute blocks. 15 minutes, the first 15 minutes is usually called failure time. And we've got a list of 500 activities that are relatively generic yeah. where we encourage kids within that safe space to try something they may not have tried before. Okay, And it's very simple, but what they do is they neurologically develop that capacity to be uncomfortable,
0: nice. to
1: look like a fool, for example, and yep. then to try again. Yep. And I think that's, you know, if we look back at the rationale for that, it's super important. If you're a minority kid, if you're any kid, but if you're a kid that's particularly had to wrestle through life, you put your hand up in school and then if you get shot down by a peer or a teacher or whatever, you're never going to put that hand up again. Yeah, And we're we're developing that resilience, that kind of neurological base for going, it's okay to fail. It's important I fail every day. And I can be proud of who I am because failure doesn't it doesn't actually determine who I am. I have worth beyond that. Yeah. So that's failure time, the first 15 minutes. And there's a big kind of saying that we sort of sing around aim is like no shame at aim. And like there's no shame. And as soon as we sort of get away that stigma of of having shame and having to fit in, I think we're we're halfway there, you know?
0: Mm,
1: yeah. Nice. So that's part of failure time. And then we jump into academic support. And so we're not particular KLA tutors, but we, from a mentoring perspective, can develop that behaviour of engaging with schoolwork. And we do that for 15 minutes with the kids. We open up what they're being challenged with in mathematics, for example, and we have a run through their, their schoolwork and we go back and forth. We don't answer the questions but we purely teach how to critically analyze a particular set of work and yeah and do that in a fun setting
0: that's just now a half hour of failure time because my kids are 11 and 13 and if they yeah. ask me for help with math then I'm I'm in failure time with them so cool.
1: <laughs> and that's the best way to be a teacher yeah to admit right? you don't know
0: <laughs> i say i don't know how to do this let's figure it out <laughs> yeah cool
1: and, and, then, and then we wrap up with a, a little game called The Game of Life and what this game of life is called, um, spelt G-A-I-M-E, you know, in relation to the organisation. And yep. it's, I'm not sure if you've played Dungeons and Dragons before, but it's yep. the idea where you build a story, but the particular focus of these stories where people go around in a circle and add the next slice of the story Ah. The the, the focus of that group in that particular tutor squad is to build a story which promotes equality, which promotes imagination and starts to unpack those principles of building a fairer world that sort of aim is founded on. So off the back of that, we have video teams that pop into different continents and record the results of those particular game of life sessions. And what it does is it, it gets a kid to be able to create their own narrative off the back of stimuli, like a two-minute video, which might be challenging.
0: Yeah, I love that. And there must be some really incredible examples out there that you've come across.
1: Yeah, it's crazy because when you get a kid to, I mean, it happens with my four-year-old. You you ask him what a firefighter does and you might get a fairly simple answer, but yeah if you ask him to be a firefighter, he's marching around the backyard with his red hat on, you know, doing the doing the hose in the garden. You know, like when we role play, we actually step in, and I think it's the Bloom's taxonomy of pedagogy where you've got, if you get told something, you remember 10% of it. If you have to repeat it back, you might remember 20%. But if you have to role play it and actually play it out in real life, you're starting to think about like, you know, you got 70% of that content in your mind going through your, your veins so yep. that's the kind of idea uh, educationally
0: as you think about your own role within this organization what are your biggest challenges i mean as you because you're you're working to influence people to be involved in this organization in aim all around the world that's that's leadership right talk a little bit about your journey with that work uh, the the ups and downs the challenges the wins the as a leader trying to influence others to do this good work around the world what are you bumping up against
1: cool thanks man i appreciate it um rejection is probably the hardest thing to swallow on a daily basis people saying no i'm not interested i, I think you're kidding yourself i think you're arrogant i don't need you to leave me alone those kind of things um which is all fine and that's Something that I've learned in my own personal awareness is that only a projection of of what that person is is experiencing in terms of discomfort, and yeah, and that's fine. But it's not that easy in the moment. <laughs> no,
0: it's not. It's not.
1: <laughs> so yeah, I I, I have trouble. Um, yeah, with yeah, ongoing uh, kind of because realistically, there's only one in 100 people out of all the conversations I have that really stand up and say, yep, I'm going to walk with you. Let's do this. Yeah. And that's so much joy, and I try to suck the joy out of that, you know. And there's, plenty of, <laughs> it, it is, there's plenty of that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's also... <sighs> Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's yeah. difficult
0: work, right? I mean, yeah, it's not, I have great respect. I really, and do.
1: that's and that's why you can see in my video, I've got a, I've got a treadmill over there. I've got a weights bench. I've got a yoga mat, and you know, it's about keeping the, the you know, the anatomy alive, so that you don't <laughs> sink into sink into sort of this kind of anxiety about rejection. <laughs> yes,
0: yes, you know, that's such an interesting thing. Whether it's in my world when I'm rejected, whether it's a paper that was submitted or it was some kind of ask that didn't follow, that didn't occur, or it's a really interesting game to to reframe rejection, to reframe, because you can, it's very easy to make it all about kind of you and you're not good enough, but putting yourself out there, there's a U.S. coach, basketball coach, his name was John Wooden and you know he said something to the effect i'll put it in the show notes the quote but it was doers make mistakes and and fail and i'm pretty sure if you're failing you're a doer right you stay in the game so i have great respect so that's so that's a challenge what are yep. some of those what are some of those joys of of leading in in part this initiative and bringing it to the world like, again like maybe that hundredth fills the tank back up
1: <laughs> yeah no that's beautiful mate well there's i love when i get to uh one of the most satisfying things is in particularly over this conversation is being able to reflect on yeah it might have been painful for a lot of the time for the last couple of years for example but how beautiful it is that i could have gained a sense of self-awareness that i don't plummet to you know the the deepest depths of hell every time someone tells me no or so having reflected just over the last half an hour just that, that that there is learning there is changes happening within myself which is that's something to celebrate yeah and oh for sure for sure right maybe i can pass that on to my kids you know and a lot of other things you can talk about in terms of our impact on thousands of kids and potentially where they might go and do with their lives and you get a couple of case studies that are just so heartwarming but I suppose I stay alive with that idea that I'm learning and I, I'm excited about the the game every day going to going to work and connecting with different people particularly you know in a new country a new imagination president and and there's there's plenty of energy there and you know I I had a a,
0: a fairly significant rejection in in the last couple of weeks And what you just said really resonated for me because it was an opportunity for me to even say to my kids, okay, that didn't happen and kind of model how to go for something, but still appreciate when it didn't work out, go for something and still learn and feel good about myself when it didn't work out. Because even, I mean, how old are your
1: kids? Yeah, they're, they're four and seven.
0: Okay. So yeah, I mean it gets to the point where now they're trying out for teams, they're trying out for parts in musicals, they're they're putting themselves out there and there's such wonderful learning in some of that. I mean, given your your background in competitive sports,
1: I mean, it's part of the gig. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And I think even deeper than sports, you know, sports is a fairly out there arbitrary concept. I know it's very central in American and Australian psyche, but One of the more important things is like when when someone our spouse maybe gets upset at us, how do we handle that? Yeah, you know, do we see their perspective? I mean, that's one of the hardest things in the world, but I mean, probably one of the most beautiful things in the world too. Like we can we can lose grand final and and somehow recover from that, but can we recover from an argument? Can we recover from, you know? um, Yeah, that that that's the good stuff, mate. As uh as robin williams would say in goodwill hunting it's they're the peccadillos they're the they're the the good stuff yeah that's such a good film such a good film as you think about
0: your work what do people need to know about working with individuals in these communities what what do people need to know what have you learned about working with with folks in say the indigenous communities in australia
1: uh probably the first thing i'd say is this inequity is multi-generational. I know know everyone knows that, Um, but really unpacking the the trauma of a community and and a, a demographic takes a long time and to remember that maybe a whole lifetime and maybe you'll get nowhere in a whole lifetime, but you will have opened or peeled some layers of the onion and... And just to be content in that. And I think that comes back to, you know, be content in your own self development, your own self awareness as the byproduct of your work. Any other big picture stuff or great change or educational attainment rates, you know, they're an add on. Uh, so that would be my kind of sentiment. You know, the idea that, for example, in the Australian story, 1788, we have colonization and a disregard for the current humanity that was here. And then from that, there was, you know, Aboriginal people looped into, missions or groups by church groups and and told to live in a certain way and wear certain clothes and asked not to speak their language and then removed from their families because of the color of their skin to try to breed the the black out of them and that sort of happened for 150 years and then over the last sort of 50 years we've come up with some ideas of how to how to bridge that gap and how to support and stuff like that but then we wonder why we suddenly, you know and not making traction within a couple of years of starting a not-for-profit for example as we look at that chronology we can see clearly that we just need to wait and listen you know gently empower and um, build build some platforms for for them to lead and and lead their own change
0: well i've been having this conversation with some folks lately and it's a thought experiment so for listeners this is not a a hard opinion or it's not a well formulated thought but, you know, the, the, the question of is part of our work as human beings, um, I, I, I'm i fairly confident that this is part of that work that we have to focus on as a humanity is, I think, since the founding of humans, Homo sapiens, uh, we have crawled on the backs of others to uh make progress whether that's the Egyptians whether that's the Greeks whether that's the Romans whether that's in the United States in, in this context and can we evolve to a place as a species where we provide as many people as possible that base level opportunity to thrive and however they're supposed to be here to thrive and move away from some of that Uh, Way of being that kind of brings us to this place where we are right now, right?
1: One hundred percent. That's a beautiful, big thought. Uh, So, so rich, mate. And if this podcast gets no listens whatsoever, (laughs) us having that, us having this twenty seconds right now, yeah, let let it be that. Yeah,
0: because I think you know, I think that's the work. That's the work of the human race. And if we can't do that, I think it's going to. Uh, we're going to be limited in what we can accomplish as a species, for sure. I, I think there has to be an evolution of, and it sounds like, and and I'm kind of come back now to aim where we're talking about unlikely connections, where we're talking about building bridges, where we're talking about building relationships with folks, uh, engaging in failure time, engaging in the quick mentoring around the, the the schooling and the education, and it's invaluable. And, and again, to your point, probably the folks who are serving as mentors are getting just as much out of this experience, if not more, because their eyes are opening, to they're evolving, they're developing, they're growing. In ways, well, they, they go, probably, yeah, yeah,
1: hundred percent. They go on to take the leadership roles in the organizations. They're the new Google CEOs. They're the new, you know. Yeah, bits and pieces, and 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 now I make decisions informed by their interaction in that room ten times. You know, back yep. in their tertiary degree, and that's the idea.
0: Okay, Brendan, I always close out the the podcast by asking, what you've been reading, watching, streaming, listening to, consuming. And it could have something to do with what we've just discussed or could have nothing to do with it. So in your world, an adjacent space would be snowboarding. That's adjacent. I'm not saying that's anywhere near, but it's fascinating. I watched this documentary the other night on, on Burton, uh, the founder of Burton Snowboards. Have
1: you watched that? It's on HBO. No, 9. I haven't, but I can imagine the snowboarders are the coolest people on the planet. Yeah. Oh
0: my gosh. It I, I was in tears watching this documentary about uh, the founder of Burton Snowboards. So that's really kind of caught my eye in recent days. What's something that's really caught your attention?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I I love this stuff. Um, so I don't know how I stumbled upon it. It was about a year ago. I was flicking through my iBooks uh, app, and I was looking for an edgy kind of audio book to dig into. And I really don't know how I stumbled upon it, but I'm so thankful I did. I've done about probably. 200 hours of listening to this series over and over. Yeah. So it was written by a guy named Robert Muckamore. Okay. Uh, I think he's a British guy, but the the narrative is so compelling for me personally, and I'll take a quick shot at, at breaking it down. There's a young boy who is you know, him and his sister go to school. They have a really tough time at school. They get bullied. They've had a really hard life. Their mum sort of spends all day on the couch. She's very sick and ill, and has an ulcer on her leg and is on medication for that, and uh, a lot of complications. But she runs a a uh, a theft business basically she sends people out to to steal things um and she sort of sells them in the black market and she does all this from a telephone he comes home this particular character from a from a difficult day at school he's been bullied it's just horrible and he's just life's not good and he comes home and that night his his stepdad who's trouble comes over with some drinks and feeds them to his his mom and he wakes up the next morning and, you know, normal day and sees his mum has died because she's had too much drink with the medication, and he is suddenly forced to go to an orphanage. He's at this orphanage. This kid, he's got this incredible capacity for mathematics. He mm. just naturally has this ability to kind of take in numbers and bring out the solution. It's not not dissimilar to Will on Good Will Hunting. Yeah. And yeah. He, he's also a young boy, and he's like, 11 years old he's got a hunger for you know adrenaline and he gets caught up with these kids at the uh, orphanage to go and you know steal some stuff or get chased by police or just you know just innocent fun He just wants fun and he wants some friends and he you know gets caught up with the wrong crowd ends up in the police station uh one night and the Actual police are in cahoots with MI5, which is a spy agency, and then actually they've got a child spy agency that's completely underground that no one knows about, and they're actually quite ethical too. They give kids who have the capacity of intelligence and have a hunger for adrenaline the, the chance to be trained. And he goes on into this spy journey, lives on this spy campus for kids, has all these beautiful friends. And his intelligence, going from the kid that got bullied at school, he becomes such a beautiful spy and gets in on quite a quagmire of difficult drug lords and uncovers them by befriending their their children, etc., and it's just a beautiful story of acknowledging that genius in someone that hasn't been acknowledged before. And I've been I've been running that every night. I'm even reading it to my six year old now. <laughs> <laughs> What's the series called? It's called Cherub. Okay, so C H E R U B. That's an acronym for Charles Henderson's espionage research unit B or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) It's wild. That was a long answer, but man, that that book series is crazy.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it, man. I love it. Well, uh, Brendan, thank you for the good work that you do. Thanks for being out there every day and trying to make a difference and make the world a better place. It's very, very much appreciated. Uh, How can
1: people get in touch with you and, and aim? Yeah, so just on the AIM website, there's an inquiry line. The AIM website is a i m e m e n t o r i n g dot com, and my name is Brendan. And you shout out that you want to chat to Brendan on the inquiries line, and then the, the PA will swing it through. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's awesome. Okay, sir, be well. Thank you so much for for spending some time with me today.
1: Yeah. Thanks for making time for me, mate. I really appreciate you making the time to chat. It's been beautiful. Thanks. Of
0: course. Of course. Okay. Be well. Okay, everyone. Happy New Year. So much respect for the work that Brendan's doing. If if leadership is the process of influencing others towards a common vision or mobilizing others towards a common vision, here is an individual who is each and every day doing that work and trying to make the world a better place, trying to create opportunity and leading bottom line, leading. I would encourage you to explore their website, and I will put all of that information in the show notes so you can learn how you can get more involved. And Brendan, thank you so much, sir, for the work that you do. For me, the practical wisdom in all of this is to ensure that you have something in your life that you're giving back to, That's feeding you and not only feeding you, but making the world a better place. So that sounds like a win-win to me. Now, I hope that this is a special moment for you because I know she's excited. Uh, We have someone who is looking forward to wishing you a happy new year. Everyone, this is Emily Allen. Have an awesome 2022. Okay. Be well, everyone. Thanks as always for listening in. Take care. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro.
1: You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.